out of respect for everybody that is very timely, I'm going to go ahead and start. We'll probably have some stragglers. Um, so thank you all for coming this evening. It's great to see so many people here. Um, my name is Amy Genevieve, if I'm in trouble, and you can call me Kozak if we're in a crowd. Um, that's the easiest way to get my attention. Um, I joined the board of Baltimore Green Works because of events just like this. Um, the speaker, Sustainable Speaker Series has been happening for five years in partnership with the Enoch Pratt Library, and we're so thankful to them for being such strong partners with us on the series. The next speaker will be Michael Clare. He's the author of The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. That's on April, April 25th, and that's actually during our 10th anniversary or annual um, it, is, it is an anniversary of Baltimore Green Week, and the dates are April 20th through the 27th. Um, that week will be chock full of free events and low-cost events that include things like tours of green buildings and workshops on urban farming, um, even a canoe tour of the Middle Branch. And um, Christina, our, our devoted employee, has been working all day today on the program guide on that, and so we hope that that will be all up online next next week, so check back with us. And if you haven't already heard about these details, please make sure to sign up for our newsletter. There's a sign-up sheet outside, and there was an email actually that went out this morning, so I'm just recapping. So for people who've already heard all of this, I apologize, but here we go. So, and then my personal favorite um, is the Eco Ball, which is coming up on March 22nd. So my favorite part, I get to invite you all to a party. Um, if you haven't been, it is a, a chef challenge to the students at Stratford University to create um, delectable, delicious desserts and um, appetizers for our guests um, out of local and organic foods that we have donated to us. So please come out and you guys actually get to judge the food as well. Um, I would also like to introduce Kara Newman and then I will sit down. Um, she is the author of The Secret Financial Life of Food, but she wanted me to, to let you know that she um, considers herself a food and beverage writer first and foremost. Um, but I think she might be selling herself a little bit short because this quote by Alan Bush caught my eye and I wanted to share it with you. This book has multiple levels of appeal. It is um, of benefit to anyone who is involved in the food industry, including growers, processors, consumers, and even professionals in the culinary arts. It also has appeal for those of us who buy and sell commodity futures, helping us gain a better understanding of how the commodity futures markets have evolved. So, Karen Newman. Thanks, Amy. And thank you to everyone for coming out tonight in this uh, snowstorm. Snowstorm. <laughs> And I definitely want to say thank you to the Pratt Library and to Baltimore Greenworks for graciously sponsoring this tonight. I thought it would be fun to break this up into eight secrets about the financial life of your food rather than just talking about uh, the, the book straight on. Um, but first, maybe it would make sense to tell you a little bit about how the book came about. Um, I first started my career as a financial writer. I was just saying, Downstairs, it's kind of a shame that I didn't have the foresight to be interested in food from the get-go and go to culinary school and do my time on the restaurant line. But 
no, I came out of grad school and I was interested in finance and that's what I did. And uh, I'm now a full-time food and beverage writer and this really represents the, the, the mashup of those two interests. So how did this book come to be? Let's see, there we go. Um, I tell people that really the book's genesis comes from one phrase, two words, by breakfast. And those words were spoken or rather written by um, a, a famous commodities expert, uh, Jim Roberts, who um, was recommending that people go out and not buy Egg McMuffins, but that they go out and purchase pork belly futures, which no longer trade, but at the time were uh, an active commodity, and frozen orange juice futures. So um, in essence, that really crystallized to me, this is not just about finance, it's about food. It's about the food we go out and, and buy every day. It's about the bacon that our pork belly futures become. It's about um, the Tropicana that our frozen orange juice futures become. There's really a very solid connection there. And that's really what drove me to, to write this book. And um, actually here in Baltimore, where we have a really uh, storied, rich history as a port city, um, Baltimore also has had a number of commodities exchanges that have come and gone. Uh, starting in the 1800s, um, about the 1870s, we had the Baltimore Corn and Flour Exchange. And apparently there was a very short-lived experiment with the, the Baltimore Coffee Exchange, which was later absorbed into the New York Coffee Exchange. And uh, there's really a lot to be said about how in the commodities market in particular, geography really is destiny. Uh, when it comes to Baltimore and New York and New Orleans and a lot of the other cities along the, the East Coast, we're talking about port cities where the food was often brought up from the Caribbean and South America. We're talking about cocoa and, and sugar and coffee, items that all are not grown here. At the same time, we had um, products that were being very much produced in the United States out in the Midwest. We have the grain exchanges and the meat exchanges. And for a long time, there were really two very different exchanges. We had the, the, um, the white glove gentlemen's grain traders on one side of the, the rope at the, at the Chicago Board of Trade. And on the other, you had the more rough and tumble um, meat traders, cattle and, and beef. And that was a lot of the immigrant communities, a lot of um, Irish and Italian immigrants made their, their fortunes at the, the Merck. And um, it had a lot to do with where they were, where the commodities were produced, manufactured, grown. And same thing here. It was all about the, the access to the, the port cities. So moving on to secret number one. There's often a difference between food and food commodities. And really the most striking example um, when you're talking about the difference between the two is corn. And uh, I recently had the opportunity to talk to an economist who made it his business to go out in the field. And uh, of course, we've all eaten that, uh, that lovely corn you buy at the green market, the kind you, you slather with butter and you enjoy every summer. But there's also the, the feed grade corn 
um, and that's used primarily for feeding livestock and to a degree to, uh, for, for distilling into ethanol. And uh, the, the economist made it his business to go out and try both. And I said, so what was the, the feed grade corn like? And he said, well, it's kind of bland, it's a little chewy, but it's corn. You know, nevertheless, it's corn. And the corn that we trade, um, like any other commodity, has a very specific grade. That's one of the, the big tenets of commodity foods. Uh, there's always a very specific grade. It's, um, it might be class A, it might be characterized with a, a number rather than a letter, but what you're doing with futures is you're contracting for, I'm going to agree to buy this sack of corn in the future. And now six months down the line, it's not going to necessarily be that sack of corn, but you've made this arrangement with a contract um, to buy a specific standard of corn, a specific quality, a specific quantity. And in that case, you've got the, the feed grade corn. So secret number two, all that trading back and forth actually helps to keep food prices in check. And I bring this up because I think that there's a perception that commodities trading is necessarily sinister. And it's, it's not, by and large. There certainly are people who always are out to exploit whatever market, uh, whatever opportunity there is to be made. And the commodities market, believe me, is no different. We certainly have our share of speculators. But at heart, um, the commodities market does play an important role when it comes to food and food prices. And that's really what I wanted to, to underscore here. Um, now, how exactly does it do that? Um, first of all, when you are going to the supermarket, it would drive you bananas if you were to see the price of, let's say, corn go up and down, up and down, up and down, just the way uh, it does on the commodities market. The prices go go up, they, they skyrocket, they plunge, often in the, the course of a single day. Um, now, with the commodities market, it helps to smooth that out. And um, on average, um, if there is a prolonged trajectory in the commodities market, it doesn't show up in the supermarket on average for about a year and a half. So that's, help, that's helpful. Oops, that's still on? Okay. Um, the commodities market also is helpful to manufacturers and retailers and others for setting prices. And this is called price discovery. Uh, it gives a, a baseline for people to, to price. Instead of just plucking a you know, price from out of the blue, uh, you can go to the, the listings and see where it's priced. Um, and to me, one of the most intriguing ways that commodities impact what we eat and what we pay for what we eat is when we come to restaurants and large manufacturers. Um, I had the opportunity to talk with someone who's, who um, works as a consultant to uh, large restaurant chains, big ones. I mean, we're talking Chili's size chains, so not necessarily Chili's. And uh, his job is to work with companies. Um, let's say they have a hamburger chain concept. And he'll work with them using input from the commodities markets to help them decide what are they going to, to sell? How are they going to price it? What else is going to be on the menu? 
if cattle prices are likely to soar, and he has the, the predictive data to help figure that out, um, he can work with these, um, these burger chains and say, well, should we be selling burgers? Should they be entirely made out of beef? Should they be part beef and part lamb? Should they be vegetarian? Um, are cheese prices expected to soar? Can we actually have cheeseburgers? Do we need to substitute something because cheese prices will be so far out of our reach in, you know, in six months, a year down the road? Should we not even do a hamburger concept at all? Should we be thinking about a chopped salad chain? I mean, these are the sorts of questions that the commodities market can help answer, and that's, that's helpful. Uh, this picture here, this is the, the early grain market, uh, circa 1880. Whoops, went too far. Very sensitive. Um, and I wanted to read to you, um, this is from Harper's New Monthly Magazine, 1880. It really depicts the, the chaos of the, the grain floor. It really just sets the, sets the scene in such a beautiful way. It describes the, a typical trading scene at the Board of Trade, and remember, this was the gentleman's exchange. Like a battle between hosts of raging lunatics. Men, young and old, struggle toward each other, yelling fiercely and shaking their fists and fingers and suddenly stopping, as if at the crucial moment of conflict and slaughter to scribble furiously on cards. On the west side are about 100 telegraphers, making a noise like a continuous rattle of musketry. They are kept busy during trading hours receiving and sending messages. Messenger boys rush about, and the floor is yellow with torn telegrams, lying thick as autumn leaves. I love that image. It also uh, tells you that um, the trajectory of the commodities market, really, it's the story is in tandem with what's, what goes on in technology and in industrialization. Everything started on, you know, on the East Coast, but as the, the railroads pushed further west, we were able to transport goods back and forth, the, the food that was grown in the Midwest and later the, the far west, uh, back to the more populous eastern cities, and, and of course transporting people out to make their fortune further west. And uh, at the same time, technology just made such a tremendous difference. Um, first, we had all of these tremendously um, fragmented markets. Then we had the telegraph telling us um, what people were paying for corn in um, not just in Baltimore, but in New York and maybe in London and elsewhere. And again, that, that transforms the cast of the market. It becomes more centralized over time. Um, from there, you move on to um, the telephone, I mean, what a tremendous difference that made when you were able to phone stock prices and make trades back and forth in what must have seemed like miraculous um, instant time. Of course, electronics changed everything. Digital trading changed everything. Now there are almost no trading floors left. Those um, thickets of autumn leaves, those tickets, gone. It's now all paperless. And there are almost no places to go and see what trading looks like in the pits. If it's something that you want to see, if it's on your bucket list, get out there and go to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange now. Uh, the Intercontinental Exchange in New York no longer does any kind of um, in-person trading. Uh, one of the, the last small independent marts in Kansas City just stopped doing in-person trading. The Merc is the only one left, and it's going to be gone real soon. So speaking of the Merc, this is what we have right here. This was the beginning of hog trading futures in uh, the 1960s. 
Of course, that little piggy was just there for the publicity shot. Wasn't always there. But I mean, take a look at the, the clerks you have there writing in chalk as fast as they furiously could to update what was going on in the, the markets. I mean, that's something you surely don't see anymore. That's no longer anyone's job description. So secret number three, food prices can influence what gets planted. Um, it influences what happens now. I'm not going to keep reading things to you, but just one last time. Um, this is from Chad Hart. He's an assistant professor at Iowa State University and a grain market specialist. Um, so the question that, that is in his mind is, as a farmer, I can decide whether to plant soybeans or corn, which will provide a better price for me at harvest, or I can decide the amount to grow. Futures provide a signal. Is it necessarily an accurate signal? No, but it's the best signal we have. People are actually willing to put up contracts and make trades. It represents an actual transaction that will occur. And uh, this isn't the first time in history that we've used um, commodity pricing to make decisions. Um, there's actually, and this will tell you why I put this slide up here, there's um, actually um, a ratio called the corn-pig cycle. It takes, this was uh, something that the farmers would think about, it takes five pounds of corn to add one pound of weight to a pig on the hoof. So you had to decide, did it make more sense? You know, do you want those five pounds of, of corn or you want the, you know, that one pound of pig, which made better economic sense for you? Do you want to be raising corn or raising pigs? There was also another one called the, uh, the corn whiskey cycle, and there the ratio is six to one. And you need to think about this also, um, you need to think about how perishable corn is. And by making it into corn whiskey, you create something that is uh, certainly a lot less perishable, often more desirable, um, unfortunately taxable. So that was a very important consideration, especially at that time. Um, all important things. So it's not the first time that we've been thinking about um, how, the, how commodities tell us what to plant and when. So secret number four, those crazy swings in the commodities market won't affect what you pay at the supermarket, at least not right away. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, this is, I think, one of my, my favorite statistics. For when you buy packaged food, only 15 to 20 cents of every dollar goes toward the raw, raw commodities used in that product. So if you have a box of cornflakes, that's only 15 to 20% in that box going to the actual product. I mean, what else, what else would probably go into that, that box? What else aside from corn? I heard transportation, advertising, packaging, processing, labor, fuel, all of those things go into, don't forget, uh, paying for retail space at the supermarket. All of these things go, go in. You are literally paying more for the packaging on your cornflakes than you are for the cornflakes themselves. Hard to believe, but true. Um, if you go back to the 1940s or 1950s, it probably was less true because food didn't travel quite as far away from where it was initially produced. So you might argue that now, um, commodities are, play less of a, a role in that box of cornflakes than they did before. 
Secret number five. So these are, by the way, egg traders. And yes, eggs were a highly actively traded commodity for a very long time, and not just fresh eggs, which were the, the gold standard, but also um, what were called storage eggs. Those eggs were um, put into cold storage. They would be uh, coated lightly with vegetable oil. And remember, this is before refrigeration. They'd be put into cold storage, like in an ice house, and left there for months. And uh, eggs, of course, at this time were only laid in season. They'd be, you know, um, available in abundance in the in the springtime. And come the colder months, you would have to go and get your your storage eggs, and they would be sold at quite a premium. And then there was another contract. Those were frozen eggs. Those were storage eggs. I can't believe we're starting with the storage eggs. Already been there for months. Um, they were factories. Uh, women, and it was always women, um, they would do what was called candling. They would take the, the eggs, hold it up to a flame to examine for any kind of imperfections, blood clots, things like that. Uh, then they would break the egg, smell it to see if it had turned, <laughs> and put it into a large pot, a large vat, which was later frozen. And those lovely frozen eggs would be used for things like making mayonnaise and pies and pasta. And uh, eventually, of course, as refrigeration improved and um, animal husbandry techniques improved, hens were eventually tricked into laying all year round. And there was no longer a need for uh, frozen eggs. Now we actually have liquid eggs instead. Um, or storage eggs. We just have the fresh eggs. And there wasn't all that much volatility around that either. I bring this up because. When it comes to food commodities, here's what makes a food commodity. It's either something that we really need to survive, corn, soybeans. It's something that we love and we really value and are willing to pay a premium for, sugar, cocoa, coffee. I'm willing to pay a premium for cocoa and coffee. Um, and then the other element that you, you need, the other ingredient you need, is volatility. If you can't make, if traders can't make money on these uh, these trades, and they make money because there are lots and lots and lots of trades, and there's um, a spread, you know, it's, it's high, it's low. You make money on what's um, in between the high and the low. Um, when there's not a lot of volatility, there's not a lot of money to be made in in the trades. Um, so that's one reason why eggs stop trading. I believe the last fresh egg contract, I believe, went by the, the wayside in the 1970s. Uh, before that, it was hugely speculative. There were scandals in the egg trading market. I kid you not. Um, it's also the reason why pork belly futures no longer trade. They traded for 50 years. They were iconic. You think of, um, of commodities. You, most people do think of pork bellies, even though after 50 years, they no longer trade. The reason they no longer trade, there's no longer enough volatility. Um, again, we have advances in refrigeration. It's, it's easy to, um, to obtain pork bellies and pork products at any time in the year. There's been no change in demand. I mean, we still have a tremendous demand for, for pork belly in fancy restaurants, I'd say even more than before. And of course, for bacon, the, you know, the best part of the pork belly. Um, once it's cured and, and salted. But um, when the volatility went away, 
eventually so did the pork belly market. Volatility is just a very important part of what makes a commodity a commodity. Okay, so secret number six is that traders bet on what you eat and what your food eats too. Uh, does anyone know what the number one commodity is in terms of either, in terms of trading volume or largest crop in America? Any guesses? Corn. And soybeans, I heard a lot of people say this number too. Um, and it's, it's not a coincidence. Um, corn is fed to, to pigs and to cattle. Soybeans fed to poultry. Uh, chicken, chickens are, are very much fed on, on soybeans. Um, soybean oil is fed to dairy cows to increase milk production. Um, they're both also used for non-edible products. Uh, corn is distilled into ethanol. Soybean is distilled into multiple products. Okay, secret number seven. Okay, I'm going to tell you two stories here, and hopefully I won't completely put you off of everything to do with commodities. I, I do feel very strongly that when it comes to history, it's a lot about stories. It's about people. It's about people doing interesting things, pioneering things, sometimes not so savory things. And there are two people in particular, almost 100 years apart, I'd like to tell you about. Uh, number one is in the grain market. We're talking about the 1800s, so I don't have a good photograph of him, sorry. Um, so 1897, we are talking about Joseph Leiter. He is, at this time, he's 28 years old. He's the equivalent of, let's call him a trust fund kid. So to, since I don't have a photo, imagine, imagine someone you didn't like very much in high school or a reality star who seems to be a little too entitled. And that, that's Joseph Leiter. He has the long flowing hair. He's known for his trademark pearl gray waistcoat and his stovepipe hat. And you can imagine him just striding onto the, the trading floor, the, the grain trading floor, of course, the white glove for the very first time. Um, now his father was Levi Z. Leiter. He was the co-partner in what became the, the tremendous Marshall Field Department store empire. And he made his money in real estate and he wanted his son to make his money in real estate too. And uh, young, young Joseph said, well, that, that's going to take so long. I don't want to wait that long. I want to make money. I want, I want fast money. I want to have some fun. I want to go speculate on the grain markets. So, you know, he just kind of strides in there, and he's going to do his thing. And uh, before long, he is cornering the, the grain market. He is uh, he's buying tremendous amounts, scary amounts. And someone else on the trading floor doesn't like what this whippersnapper is doing, and he's determined to put him in his place. And that someone is P.D. Armour, as in hot dogs, Armour hot dogs. Now, P.D. at this point is about 60. He made his money in the, the meatpacking industry the hard way, and he's now um, very comfortable, and he's earned himself a, a spot, uh, you know, trading the the gentleman's grain futures, and he does not like what this, what this young whippersnapper is doing. He's going to show him how it's done, and he takes the other side of the trade. 
Um, so keep in mind we have lighter buying and PD armor poised to sell. There always has to be someone on the other side of the trade. Keep in mind also it is the late 1800s and these days people trade without having ever seen what they're, they're trading. It's just, it's electronic. There are people who have never seen raw cocoa beans um, or have spent any time in a pork processing plant or a, or a meat processing plant. But um, at this time, you know, we're talking about physical commodities. Something has to be delivered. Someone is taking the other side of the trade. So um, what PD does, it's time for him to deliver the wheat. Um, and the amount is about 9 million bushels of wheat. That is a tremendous amount. And PD is not going to be caught short. No way, no how. He's a well-connected guy. So what he does is he goes to every farmer that he knows, and luckily he knows a whole lot. He knows them into Minnesota. Um, he knows them up into Canada, up through the Northwest Corridor. Keep in mind, we don't really have the full infrastructure of the, the railway system yet. Um, so he has farmers, all, well, I don't think I'm exaggerating much, you know, sweeping out the last kernel of, of wheat to help him make the, the delivery of this enormous amount. But winter's coming on. It's cold. The, the, um, we don't yet have the, the railway. What we have is we have ships. And the ships can't get through if everything's frozen. So what does PD do? He hires people to dynamite through the snow, through the ice. Eventually his ships come through and he's able to meet his obligations. And in the end, young Joseph Leiter loses a tremendous amount of money and daddy has to come bail him out. And uh, there, there were other extenuating circumstances why he lost a tremendous amount of money on this and other trades too. But uh, suffice it to say that Joseph Leiter never traded again. Uh, so another story for you to tell, who is this gentleman? This is Tino DeAngelis, who described himself as the salad oil king. And salad oil, if you're not familiar with it, um, is either cottonseed oil or soybean oil, or often, a, often both. Um, I'm going to kind of shorthand a lot of this. This is taking place in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, what you see to the right is uh, his, his oil processing plant in Bayonne, New Jersey. And those, uh, all those pipes, that intricate little maze work, he used that to move salad oil from one tank to another when the inspectors would come to visit. He didn't have all of that salad oil. What he did have was the knowledge that oil floats on water. And a lot of those tanks were filled with seawater with a thin layer of salad oil on top. And the shenanigans that went on were legendary. Um, the inspectors would come to lunch, and there'd be this cloak and dagger uh, switch from one tank to another. Um, on top of this, there was a check-kiting scandal. There was um, an enormous trading fallout. In the end, he, he lost a tremendous amount of money. Um, Let's see. But I mean, when you hear the statistics, it's just staggering. Um, 
DeAngelis, either personally or through the companies he controlled, held 40% of the total soybean oil futures contracts outstanding on the CBOT and nearly 85% of the outstanding cottonseed oil contracts on the, the New York Produce Exchange. 40% and 85%. So when it was discovered that there was no salad oil and that this was completely fraudulent, uh, that deck of cards came tumbling down awfully fast, uh, brought down um, 20 different uh, brokerage firms, brought down a unit of American Express. And um, it's the, the great soybean oil scandal, as it's known, has been largely forgotten to history. And the reason is not because it wasn't a tremendous scandal or because people didn't lose money, because it was and they did. But when it broke, um, shortly thereafter, it broke in 1963. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, President Kennedy was shot. And uh, when it comes to the headlines, you know, the assassination of the president trumps all. And as a result, um, with the exception of a handful of, uh, of brokers who were there and, and know what happened, it really has been forgotten, largely forgotten. And just kind of as, as an aside, in order to survive, the produce exchange had to undergo an identity change as a result. Um, it, the International Commercial Exchange was created in 1970 under the sponsorship of the New York Produce Exchange. And then the Produce Exchange was merged into that entity and dropped its own name. And that was another lovely byproduct of the, the soybean oil scandal, the salad oil scandal, excuse me. Okay. so. Hopefully I haven't completely scared everyone out of ever having anything to do with the commodities market or foods that are traded as commodities. But it is helpful to know secret number eight, something people don't think about all the time. Um, if you want to opt out of buying commodity foods, you can. Um, all you need to do really is buy local. Buy from your local green market, buy from the local butcher, uh, get as close as you can to the original source without having a middleman in between. And uh, on that note, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Who has the first question? Yes, sir. Where does the USDA purchase of commodities come into this whole scheme? The USDA purchase of commodities? Yeah. The USDA purchased a lot of commodities. Price support to keep prices up. I'm not sure. It's a really interesting question to consider, though. Maybe they don't buy on commodity markets. Maybe they buy outside. They do apples, for instance. They do beans. They do cheese. That kind of thing to keep the surpluses for lowering the prices. Okay, I can say that a lot of those don't trade as futures. So um, there certainly are plenty of food items that certainly are, are tracked by the USDA. Um, I think of, of honey as one of them. There's, they quote spot prices for honey. Um, but I don't think they would be official commodity futures. I also feel like I should kind of put out there before too many questions um, come that I'm, I'm not a trader, I'm not an economist, I'm not an analyst, um, but I am as a, a food and beverage writer who knows a, a, little, a little too much about the, the commodities market right now. But next question, please. Yes. I have a question about water. I mean, we don't think of water as a commodity, but I'm sure that in the future, 
problem, especially when you look at more extending droughts and the impacts on different areas of, of um, farm production. Will water ever become a commodity? So the question is about will water ever become a commodity? Um, in my opinion, I think it, it could. I think there's certainly a compelling argument for it. Um, I think equally interesting, um, although pepper and, and spices do trade as commodities and have in the past, um, salt has never traded as a commodity to, to my knowledge. And I feel like it has similar um, characteristics that water would. It's widely available. It's uh, certainly critical to survival. And um, if there were a situation where hoarding or cornering a market were involved, it could be potentially disastrous. I'm not sure if that means that water will never be traded or if there's a flip side to that same argument that it potentially would be even more valuable if it, if it were traded. But it would certainly be an interesting one to explore. That's alarming. Water for people to survive individually, but also the question of where's the water drugs come from? It's a good question. Yes. Has there been what has been the effect of agribusiness on uh, the commodities market? The effect of agribusiness on the commodities market. Um, I can tell you that um, certainly one effect, whether intended or not, is that there's been a lot more uh, speculation in the markets than ever before. When uh, the markets were first created, they really were intended to help hedge risk for the people who were actually producing the food and were incurring risk along the, along the, the supply lines. Um, you were manufacturing it. You were involved in producing it. Um, and we've had a lot more people come in in recent years and really be involved just as pure speculators. We now have more money in, um, in index funds, commodity index funds, than ever before. Um, there are other traders who are just in it um, without having an interest in what happens to the, the food. I mean, the, the food is irrelevant. It's, it's about the, the trading and, and the profits. And I do think agribusiness has a lot to, to do with that. Other questions? Yes. Can you explain how, how speculation happens? I mean, how's, what's, what's the mechanism? If somebody's messing with the market, what are they doing exactly? This is where I'm going to go back to my, my food corner. And I'll answer it as best I can, but it may not be satisfactory. Um, when we're talking about speculation, we're really just talking about pure investment um, without really having an interest in the, the food products. So um, in some cases, we're talking about index funds, hedge funds. Um, there are a large number of what I, I believe are called passive funds, where people don't even know where the, the money is being invested. Um, but there are certainly people whose job it is as fund managers to, to make sure that, um, that the money is made. And um, right now, the commodities market is, is rollicking. I mean, quite frankly, the, 
the stock market is too. I mean, you've seen where the, the Dow is. We're at record highs right now. Um, but the commodities market has proved to be a really um, lucrative place to be right now. So yeah, there's definitely a greater interest in speculation than before. There's another hand up. Yes. Um, based on your definition of what a commodity is, it seems like marijuana would, would qualify, and as it's becoming legalized, and there's a, a industry growing around it, including the food industry, I was wondering if you would speculate about the likelihood of something like pot or something that has previously been illicit, when it becomes legitimized and has been widely distributed, at what point? Okay, so the question is, can marijuana become a commodity? Um, I'm not sure that it will be a, a food commodity per se, but um, kind of kind of stretching the metaphor, you know, it can be consumed. I mean, you think about tobacco futures and, and marijuana futures kind of being in the, the same boat. Um, I mean, if it is legalized nationally, which it is not yet, um, and it's certainly, it's a product that can be grown, it's a product that can be subject to the same um, weather factors potentially. I mean, that's there's that element of, of volatility, there's the element of supply and demand. Um, it's certainly a luxury product that some people are willing to pay a premium for. Um, maybe you have the, the next hot commodity there. I don't know. One of the things actually that does concern me about the commodities market is the fact that we've seen different products slide off the market. We no longer have um, those frozen egg futures. We no longer have pork bellies. We haven't seen a whole lot of new products coming onto the market. How does it happen? Um, well, I think what we're going to see happen going forward is I think we're going to see more products come on that have more of a global interest. One of the products that I'm keeping a very close eye on right now is frozen apple juice concentrate. Um, we have um, frozen orange juice already trading, and the the next item, um, the next greatest consumed fruit product on a global basis is apple juice concentrate, and after that it's, it's grapes. Um, and there are people right now who are looking um, very seriously at the possibility of creating an apple juice concentrate contract. And I think if that comes on, it, it's a product that right now is primarily made in South America. It's only partly made here in North America. And if it comes on, it is likely to be global, and I think it'll have implications for how other food-based commodities or marijuana commodities are created going forward. What else can I answer? Yes, sir. Uh, do you have any sense for how large the local agriculture is? When, when people are buying directly from farmers, farmers markets, CSAs, um, how big an impact is that relative to the size of these commodity markets? Tiny. I, mean, how, I, I don't have a stat to quantify that off the top of my head, but compared to the, the commoditized, commoditized um, markets, I mean, we're talking drop in the bucket, but I do think it has the potential to 
increase as people are becoming so much more interested in buying local and going to their CSAs. And we have more people interested in farming and agriculture than ever before. What else can I answer? Yes, sir. Could you tell us what you know about the intersection of the volatility in the commodities market and how it affects the health of the environment? For example, corn is grown for ethanol, it's on the market, the commodities market, but it also creates massive things. And besides, Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico, where we run off from all the chemicals that are used to grow corn down through the Mississippi River. So I'm just wondering if this commodity market is creating efficient disasters for the environment. Oh wow, that's alarming. So let me see if I'm if I'm getting this correct. So the question is, does the volatility of the market have an impact on the environment? Am I right? I mean, in a sense, because markets are based on efficiency, right? So so the fact is that we have a disproportionate amount of our farming is important soybeans, which use phosphorus and other uh, fertilizers, which are then into the Mississippi, leaching, I should say, is the correct word, into the Mississippi River that created its own size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. So, what role does, maybe I should raise my question, what role does markets have in this, in the commodity market? It's an expression of the markets. Okay, interesting. Um, my short answer, and I bet we have a lively debate about this, my short answer is that I'm not convinced that there is a correlation between the two. Only I say that because just because it doesn't trade on the commodities market and people aren't making money off of it that way, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And uh, I I think there probably are more um, more useful connections to be drawn than than this one in, in particular. Should we try one last question? I think I'm running out of time. Yes, sir. Uh, in relation to volatility, some of our um, some of the commodities mentioned come from more volatile regions of the world than others. We grow plenty of corn here in the United States, which generally is not grown in the volatile region. I mean, maybe environmentally, but in terms of politics, um, social unrest, things like that. But cocoa, um, coffee often come from areas that are much much more volatile. Can you explain why? We don't see the fluctuations in we don't see fluctuations in price that much in corn, but we also don't see fluctuations in price that much in coffee or cocoa or what have you, which come from more volatile areas. Okay, so the question is since domestic products are less volatile than products grown elsewhere, like cocoa, why don't we see <laughs> more volatility in the prices. Okay. Um, interesting. I'm not sure that I agree that we don't see that kind of volatility in, in the markets. Um, I do think that when it comes to the actual products, we eventually see that volatility smoothed out and it would, it would be such a pain in the neck to see um, the same kind of increases and decreases in um, in cocoa futures on our Hershey bar. But I mean, the Hershey bar is actually a really interesting example. I mean, cocoa is really fascinating. Um, over time, um, there's what's called the Hershey bar index. And uh, it's kind of a, a loose index. It's not a formal indicator at all. Um, over time, 
the, um, the Hershey company has raised the price and lowered for a time the price on their benchmark Hershey bar over time starting through um, I think from the 1920s through the 1940s through the 1960s and then it kind of leveled off. They would change the size of their their Hershey bar depending on the price. They would also change the, the price. Um, and when they hit the, the famous nickel bar, um, it was more about adjusting the size of the Hershey bar year to year to make sure that it was you know always a nickel bar no matter what the, the price of the, the cocoa turned out to be. Um, and then eventually they, they just kind of gave it up and you know standardized the size and just raised the price little by little. Um, so I don't know if that quite answered the, the question, but um, I, I do think that there's a, a fair amount of, of volatility no matter what the product and where it, it originates. So with that, um, thank you for coming out tonight. It was a pleasure talking with all of you. Thank you.